Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend, Dr. Michael Wagner of Alberta, Canada. Michael Wagner, for those of you who haven't heard of him, is a senior Alberta columnist for the Western Standard. He has a PhD in political science from the University of Alberta, and he's the author of, of many books, including Alberta, Separatism Then and Now, True Right, Genuine Conservative Leaders of Western Canada, and my personal favorite, and I think most important book, Standing on Guard for the, the Past, Present, and Future of Canada's Religious Right, which is one of the only books that actually details the history of Canada's pro-life and pro-family movement from a sympathetic perspective. So we had Gwen Landolt on the program a couple of weeks back, and what I really wanted to do today was to talk to somebody who is an expert who literally wrote the book on Canada's pro-life and pro-family movement to give all of you a kind of a sense of where the movement came from, how the movement developed, and how we got from 1969 with the decriminalization of abortion in Canada to the present day where even Canada's Conservative Party appears to oppose any movement on this issue whatsoever. And so to enlighten in this, enlighten us, pardon me, on all these topics is Dr. Michael Wagner. Here is our conversation. All right, Michael, I really appreciate you joining us for the show here. You've written a, a half a dozen books on the history of the conservative movement in Canada, the social conservative movement in Canada. Your your best book, in my, in my opinion, your best book of several is Standing on Guard for Thee, the Past, Present, and Future of Canada's Religious Right. And the, the Canadian pro-life movement has a lot of young people in it that have no idea how we got here, that have no real conceptualization of how the history of our country unfolded. And that makes us kind of unique because I feel like the Americans have a better idea of, of where they came from and what their history as a movement is like. So how would you take us back to the very beginning of Canada's pro-life movement and start giving us the historical context for how we got to this moment? Thank you for having me on, Jonathan. Basically, like there's two key events that are, are more important than anything else in terms of the history of Canada's pro-life movement. The first of those is the 1969 omnibus bill that liberalized abortion laws in Canada. And the second one, which I'll come to later, is the 1988 Morgenthaler Supreme Court decision. But beginning with that 1969 law, up until that point, abortion in Canada was illegal. And Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, it was called an omnibus bill because he threw in so many different uh, criminal justice reforms together, kind of to hide some of the things that he was doing. And one of them was to liberalize the abortion law. Now, that didn't, didn't make abortion a freewheeling kind of a thing. What it did was, rather than having a complete abolition of abortion, as it had been, abortions would be available in certain circumstances in hospitals that had therapeutic abortion committees. So that'd be a committee of three doctors. So if a woman wanted an abortion, she'd have to approach the committee and explain her reasons why, you know, medically or psychologically, she needed an abortion. And then those three doctors would have to approve it before she could get an abortion. But basically how it really worked is, is those therapeutic abortion committees tended to be uh, rubber stamps. And so even though there was supposed to be, you know, some kind of restriction on an abortion with those, still most women who wanted abortions could get them easily. But nevertheless, there were some restrictions. But, but with that liberalization, for the first time, Canada developed a pro-life movement because there were people who knew that abortion was wrong and they, they opposed it. I mean, even when the law was being proposed, there were people who were opposed to that, those, the liberalization of it. And those people developed into the pro-life movement, the early part of the pro-life movement, once abortion was legalized in 1969. So it's after that when organizations begin to form across the country. And, you know, even by 1973, which is only four years later, you know, there's a, a petition with over 350,000 people signing it that was presented to Prime Minister Trudeau 
in opposition to the abortion uh, liberalization. And then actually, since I'm mentioning it, you know, two years later, they had a million, over a million people on a petition um, opposed to abortion in Canada. So in those early years, as I mentioned, there was a number of different groups and the, the pro-life mentality that we have now hadn't quite developed yet. I mean, in the sense that a lot of people on the left, even in those early years, were not supportive of abortion because they, you know, they saw it as a human rights issue, a civil rights issue in terms of the unborn children. So there are people even on the left in the 1970s who opposed, opposed abortion in Canada. But as the movement developed over the 1970s, there was kind of a polarization between, you know, the more conservative Christian type people who saw abortion as part of a bigger aspect of the sexual revolution and were very militant in trying to stop, you know, abortion. And then the more, the people more on the left were kind of, were more moderate in a sense, trying to look for ways of, of making reforms and things that wouldn't necessarily completely abolish abortion. But, but those kind of, those movements basically split during the 1970s. And, and basically by the 1980s, the, the left-wing group had disappeared. And it's just the conservative Christians who are still maintaining that strong testimony against abortion in Canada. Would it be fair to say then that the pro-life movement in Canada developed explicitly as a backlash to, to the 1969 decriminalization? Like there wasn't, were there any pre-existing pro-life groups as there were in the U.S.? Or was this a, was this a response to... No, this was very much a response to, I think one of the things that's different about the United States was, you know, before um, the Roe v. Wade decision, abortion was legal in some states because in the, in, before Roe v. Wade, a state could legalize abortion if it wanted. It was a state-by-state issue. So there were pro-abortion laws in some states in the United States. So there was a reason for the pro-life movement in the states to begin already. Whereas in Canada, abortion was just a federal issue, like it was either you know illegal or not across the whole country. So so abortion was illegal until 1969. So essentially, there was no reason to have a pro-life movement until you know the 1969 law liberalized abortion in Canada. So that would be a distinction between the two countries that way. When you're talking 350 signatures, you know, within within four years of decriminalization, what did the process of, of mobilization and the creation of infrastructure look like? Because the pro-life movement now looks very different than it did then. You know, you have these initial right to life groups uh, cropping up. But how did this grassroots movement come about? Well, it, like it seems to me that it started, especially at the local level, you'd have like city uh, organizations. And then the first major national organization was the Alliance for Life. And so I think they were they were kind of uh, the coalition group of these different local groups that would come together. And then later on, there would be uh, there was the Coalition for Life, like Alliance for Life was more of an educational side of the pro-life movement. Then there was the Coalition for Life, which was more political. But the Coalition for Life was more of a moderate with you know, more sympathetic to the left wing side of the pro-life movement at the time. So in 1978, Campaign Life formed as the more as the stronger conservative side. And that, you know, so there was, you know, conflict between some of these groups and, and eventually uh, Coalition for Life and Alliance for Life would kind of fade away and I guess be replaced by Campaign Life and some of the more recent pro-life organizations. Maybe I should mention here, though, too, like we're talking about the 70s. This is where Joe Borowski gets involved. And, and he's very important. Like Joe Borowski was actually an NDP member of the uh, Manitoba legislature and a, and a cabinet minister in the NDP Manitoba government in the early 70s. And he was a Roman Catholic and he became uh, a stronger Roman Catholic in the early 70s and started to take a strong pro-life stand. So that put him out of the NDP cabinet. Then he ended up uh, leaving the legislature altogether. And he started, the most important thing I guess he did was he started a court case. He wanted to challenge the liberalization of Alberta's, uh, sorry, of Canada's abortion law as violating the right to life. At at that time, that was before the Charter of Rights was adopted, but Canada had a Bill of Rights, which was just a legislative tool, like a, a piece of legislation. But he thought 
that he could challenge the abortion liberalization on the basis of the right to life under the Bill of Rights. So he started a court case that eventually, like he, he had many setbacks along the way, and there was you know different you know how it, you have to fight your way up the courts. He fought his way up, and and in the meantime, before his court his case came to the Supreme Court, the Charter of Rights was adopted. So he had to amend his court case so that rather than challenging abortion on the basis of the Bill of Rights, it was a challenging abortion on the basis of the right to life and the Charter of Rights. But so that's, that started in the late 70s, and, and his case wasn't heard until the late 80s. So it was kind of a 10-year process, but it began in the 70s. And that's why I wanted to bring it up, because Joe Borowski is one of the main heroes of the pro-life movement in, in Canada. And so people should know who he is and what he did. He was the next guy I was going to bring up. And one of the reasons for that is when you say that the the left wing side of the pro-life movement, you know, seems to have sort of melted away over the decades. Would it be fair to call an NDP cabinet minister a left winger? Well, like where would Borowski fall in that? He was you can be a conservative Catholic and also, you know, left wing politically. Where would he fall on that spectrum? Well, he certainly started started out on the political left. There's no question about that. But yeah, like like you mentioned, like especially within Roman Catholic theology, there is a you know kind of a social justice aspect to it that can also uh, in, embrace the pro life side. So I'm assuming that that's what he was part of because of his involvement with the NDP, which was of course the NDP is Canada's socialist party. So at, at least at the very beginning, he was um, in that aspect of the movement. And I I haven't I'm, I'm not certain that he ever left that in terms of his beliefs. Although, you know, as his court case developed, the support he would have gotten would have been from the more conservative side. And so he would have been affiliating himself more and more with the conservative side, whether or not his personal beliefs actually changed. So that's kind of an ambiguous answer to your question, I'm afraid. But, but he, you know, he, he certainly started out on the, on the left-wing side, and I'm not sure personally how he ended up, although the organizations and people he was affiliated with certainly ended up on with the conservative side. We have a, an abortion movement kind of concurrent to the Canadian pro-life movement that, that launches from the Vancouver Art Gallery in 1970, um, referring to itself as the abortion caravan. And they went across the country protesting uh, the first Trudeau's abortion regime, calling for total decriminalization for free abortion on demand without apology, doing kind of guerrilla theater to, to act out gruesome back alley abortions. And this kind of culminates... In, in a campaign of civil disobedience by Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, who sets up abortion clinics across Canada, you know, gets arrested, goes to court, consistently gets gets acquitted by, by juries. And then eventually, of course, this culminates in the 1988 R.V. Morgenthaler decision in which the Canada Supreme Court threw out all of our abortion laws. And this is the case, of course, that invalidated Joe Borowski's ongoing challenge to Canada's abortion regime. What can you tell us about the pro-life movement during this period? So especially as we move from the 1970s into the 1980s, you kind of have, uh, you know, the pro-life movement developing in response to 1969 decriminalization, professionalizing very quickly with their ability to accrue signatures, submit a million signatures. We had Gwen Landolt on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she described what that moment was like watching the, the bagpiper march in front of all these sleek black cars heading up to Parliament one car per province with all these signatures. So what did what did the, the further development of the movement look like and how did they how did they respond to to the abortion caravan and Henry Morgenthaler's ongoing campaign to legalize? I can't speak specifically to the caravan, but but of course Morgenthaler was very much a lightning rod for the pro-life movement. And it's it's interesting, like the the fact that you brought this up, like with the liberalization of Canada's abortion law, on the one hand, the pro-lifers were against it because it allowed abortion. And on the other hand, 
the pro-abortion side was against it because it didn't allow enough abortion. So, so both sides of the spectrum were opposed to the exact same law. And so when Morgenthaler and Borowski are both going through the courts, they're both challenging the exact same law for the opposite reasons. But Morgenthaler, of course, was, was based originally, I think, in Montreal, at least in Quebec. And he had, a, he had a clinic there, an abortion clinic going. And he was doing okay there because Quebec, the society was very favorable to abortion. And so I, I, I'm sure he had some legal problems there, but he had a lot of sympathy from the people there. It was when he brought his clinic to Toronto, I think, in 1983. That's when he really became a, a lightning rod, even more so for the English-speaking pro-life movement in Canada. So there would be protests you know, in front of his clinics, and, and that's where the case start that ended up going to the Supreme Court. Like he was charged, he, he was operating a, an illegal abortion, abortion clinic because as I mentioned, the law allowed only for abortions in hospitals that had therapeutic abortion clinics. So if a doctor was performing an abortion in any other context, it was illegal. And, and, and Morgenthaler had these clinics where he was performing abortions. So it was clearly against the law. So the government had no choice, the provincial government had no choice but to charge him even if they were sympathetic because it was just blatantly against the law. And the pro-lifers were protesting in front of his place and in, in front of his abortuary and making it obvious and saying, you know, he's got to charge this guy. So there was no way the government could hide from, from that. And there were some very significant protests, you know, in Toronto in the in 1980s. And I, I think one of them was uh, like 20 to 25,000 people at Queen's Park at one point, you know, and, and, and much of this was provoked by Morgenthaler and by the case that he was promoting to, you know, to kind of abolish any restrictions on abortion in Canada whatsoever. So, so he was charged originally in 83, I think in 84, he was acquitted. So that was appealed, of course, and, and eventually in, in 86, I think his court was his case was heard at the Supreme Court level, although it wasn't decided until January 1988. So it was all during this time. He was, you know, the bete noir of the uh, pro-life movement in Canada. And, and much of the, you know, protests and activism were done in response to the fact that he was operating abortion clinics or trying to and trying to get rid of the any restrictions on abortion whatsoever. What animated Henry Morgenthaler? Because it's been interesting for me speaking at Right to Life dinners uh, over the past decade or so. And of course, Morgenthaler feels like ancient history for, for a lot of people now, and he's been dead for quite a few years. So what animated him and what were besides besides street protests, besides clinic protests, what were some of the ways that the pro-life movement responded to the threat that Morgenthaler posed to, to babies in Canada? He was motivated ideologically, I really think that. I mean, he had been involved in Montreal, like, as, I think even as early as the 60s, in, this, in the organized secular humanist movement there. Like, that was his ideology. He was very much animated by particular secular ideals, the secular humanist movement. And so it was, well, so ideology was definitely the, the framework for, you know, he did his work within that, within that certain set of beliefs that were important to him that he wanted to promote. Of course, you have to mention he made a lot of money on the side with this business. You know, he became very wealthy doing it. So it'd be hard to say that he didn't have a financial interest in it as well. But I, I think primarily it was an ideological thing, at least to get him going. In terms of other things that the pro-life movement did, of course, by by the 80s, I think they, they were starting to, like I, the pro-life, pro-lifers were starting to identify pro-life members of parliament and trying to get, you know, pro-life members of parliament elected to have a stronger voice for pro-life, you know, potential legislation in the in the House of Commons. So they'd have that. Yeah, there, there were, um, I'm just, my mind is kind of going blank. I'm just thinking of the protests. Of course, well, I'm just, once we get to the Morgenthaler decision, you'll know, be able to talk about Operation Rescue and things like that. So it, it's kind of like the, the movement was doing things in relation to the events that were happening in their time, if you know what I mean. So um, 
So, you know, because the clinic was there, they had the reason for protesting. Once the Morgenthaler decision came down in 1988, it was after that. Well, of course, part of that decision was that the the Supreme Court said that the parliament had the right to bring in abortion legislation if it wanted to. So that made it especially important to have pro-life members of parliament elected. So at least certainly by that point, after the Morgenthaler decision, it became a very important part of the pro-life movement to identify pro-life members of parliament or potential uh, members of parliament, like candidates who are pro-life to get them elected because uh, they knew that parliament had that power. And there were attempts in parliament, of course, to bring in pro-life legislation, but they, without support from the government, that those kind of, uh, you know, those kind of proposals wouldn't go anywhere. So I, I hope, hope I'm not getting ahead of you here, but but finally, and <laughs> finally, the, the, the Mulroney government, which was re-elected in 1988, actually, I, I should mention, this is an important thing. You know, the Morgenthaler decision came down in January of 1988. So the federal election was held in November of 1988. So, so for pro-lifers, that was the first federal election after the Morgenthaler decision, which made it imperative for them to get pro-life members of parliament elected so that they could get legislation, you know, to restrict abortion. However, in 1988, the real focus of the election was Canada-US free trade. That had been a big issue in the country for a couple of years. It was the major proposal from Brian Mulroney. So the focus of the election campaign for the majority of people and the media was on free trade rather than the pro-life issue. So so the Conservatives under Brian Mulroney were re-elected in 1988 on this free trade agenda, and some more pro-life members of parliament were elected in his um, caucus, but that wasn't the focus of, of the election itself. Nevertheless, they did get some more pro-life members of parliament elected. And so in 1990, I think it was, the Mulroney government did propose a piece of legislation to restrict abortion in Canada. I think it was Bill C-43, something like that. So what this bill would have done, on the one hand, it would have said that abortion was criminal. But on the other hand, it had lots of exceptions so that women could get abortions if they if they felt it was medically necessary or psychologically necessary or things like this. So, so this bill... Ironically, well, I guess it was kind of like the liberalization of 1969. It was opposed by both sides or by most people on both sides. Pro-lifers did not like it because of the exemptions, you know, the loopholes that were in there for women to get abortions. But the pro-abortion people didn't like it because technically it criminalized abortion. So so that bill ultimately was defeated because it was neither side was able to support it. There were, you know, there were some pro-lifers who, who did support it because you know, for pragmatic reasons, they thought, well, if, they, if we don't have this level of restriction, we'll end up with no restrictions. And in, in retrospect, you know, they, they actually turned out to be prophetic that way. But, but, but the pro-lifers at the moment, in, the, in that moment, they saw those exceptions to the criminalization and they, they figured it would lead to abortion on demand. And so that they felt they had to oppose that particular law. Before we get in, into more details on that, I want to back up just a little bit. I've I've, I've gone through a lot of boxes of, of sort of archives at uh, various pro-life offices, some of which have shut down. So I've gone through boxes and boxes of, of paperwork. And one of the things that I have found mountains of evidence for is a real focus after 1969 on pro-lifers attempting to have uh, pro-lifers elected to the therapeutic abortion committees, which were these committees of doctors that would decide whether or not women could get an abortion. Because in the period between 1969 and 1988, the status quo was if you wanted an abortion, you applied for one and a panel of three doctors would determine whether or not it was necessary. So I especially have a lot of files from, from all the battles over these committees at the Vancouver General Hospital. And so these, these, this was one of the primary battlegrounds for the pro-life movement for, for 19 years. What can you tell us about those campaigns? Those were successful, especially in, in the Maritimes and in rural areas. Like I, 
like you mentioned Vancouver, I suspect that there would have been strong pro-abortion support in Vancouver because it's a major city and, you know, abortion tends to have stronger support in the big cities than it does in rural areas and smaller communities. So, so I, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't know specifically what happened in the Vancouver uh, area, but I'm sh- I, I suspect that there would have been a very strong pro-abortion op- op- opposition to getting pro-lifers onto the, you know, onto those those elected positions but but back but in in the maritimes there were communities where you know abortion was not supported very strongly at all so the pro-lifers had an, had an upper hand and they did get elected to those offices and they were so there was a number of hospitals in the maritimes and i think some of the rural areas where the therapeutic uh, abortion committees were abolished so that women could not obtain abortions in those areas so yeah that was that was a very significant thing under the original, the 1969 law, that was a very effective tactic in some, in some communities to eliminate abortion in those communities. So yeah, that's, that's right. But I, like, I don't have specific details of, you know, which communities and, and, and the details of which fights took place, but that was definitely something that pro-lifers were successful in some of the communities where they took, where they engaged in that kind of activity. So taking a look now, I want to back up just a little bit and take a look at at Operation Rescue because it's kind of this unique phenomenon that doesn't last very long. Most of the listeners who are familiar with some of the people we've interviewed will remember that that Operation Rescue began in the mid-80s under Randall Terry in the United States. It essentially involved nonviolent sit-ins in front of abortion clinics where people tried to block the door so women could not get abortions. And... Here in Canada, the the movement almost sprung up in response to the Morgenthaler decision. And there's people like John Hoff, formerly of of United for Life BC, who talks about getting strip searched and jailed over this. But Canadian judges cracked down harder and faster than American judges. And so this sort of response to RV Morgenthaler was short-lived. What has your research told you about how this movement sort of sprung up and then died within a couple of years? Ken Campbell, I think, invited Randall Terry to Toronto to... It was probably early 1989 when they started getting involved in this. So definitely in Toronto and Vancouver, there were other communities as well. I'm assuming John Hoff was in BC there in Vancouver. But yeah, they, so they, you know, this was quite a thing in Canada to have this kind of civil disobedience. But it, it was in response to the frustration over the Morgenthaler decision, you know, because with the Morgenthaler decision, there were absolutely no legal restrictions on Alberta, sorry, on abortion in Canada whatsoever. And so you had this kind of free reign for abortion. And there was nothing like the the, poli- the pro-life politicians were trying to do something in Parliament were completely unsuccessful. They weren't able to get anywhere. So this frustration just builds and people are like, you know, what can we do? And, you know, because it's such a serious issue and because Christians know that lives are being lost, many people felt that there was nothing else they could do, but this engage in this civil disobedience, like you say, peaceful civil disobedience. So they would, you know, use their bodies to block the abortuary doors. And of course the, the police were not very kind to them. And as you mentioned, the judges were very, very harsh on them to prevent, um, you know, because they wanted to discourage it from happening and they were very successful in that. I, so I, I don't think it went on for much more than a few months. Although, you know, there might have been scattered occurrences here and there afterwards, but the, the big push for it, I think, was just in the first part of 1989. So it didn't last very long, but it was a very big uh, news event, you know, a very big event from the, from the perspective of the history of the pro-life movement that people were willing to, you know, go to this level of commitment and risk going to jail, you know, and losing so much from the punishments that they've received from the, from the, from the judges. So, so it's, it's kind of, a, there's a sense if you like, if you look at it over a period of decades, it's kind of a flash in the pan kind of a thing, but it's a big flash. And it makes, you know, it's, um, it shows, it shows so much dedication and courage on the part of, of some of those people. So, you know, people really to be admired, even though, you know, the, the outcome of what they were looking for wasn't achieved. They nevertheless made this really strong witness and testimony for the truth, you know, with the courage that they showed and, and using their bodies that way. 
the slogan of, of, of Operation Rescue always was, if abortion is murder, act like it. And I always felt like that. that the, I like the way you put that, actually, a, a flash in the pan, but a big flash in the pan, because it is a relatively minor event in terms of duration, but it's a major event in terms of intensity of, of what actually took place. And it was a lot of pro-lifers sort of putting their money where their mouth was in a way that most of them probably wouldn't have been able to fathom a short time before because conservative people are inherently disinclined to engage in this sort of activism. And so for, you know, Catholic, Reformed, Evangelical family men and women to, to get arrested to buck the law is, is enormously out of character. And even just from a Canadian perspective, you know, uh, like you put it most correctly in, term, in terms of like the kind of people that were getting involved, people who wouldn't normally do that kind of thing. But even, you know, Canada, we tend to see ourselves as more moderate and more laid back, I guess, in some sense that the Americans, Americans are more, you know, uh, loud and noisy and in terms of their politics, we're quieter and, and so on. But, but yeah, so this in, in the Canadian context, this is especially, you know, out of the norm, so to speak. So how would you, you summarize the decade then uh, following? So we have got the 1990s and the 1990s are in some ways a very disappointing uh, a decade because abortion just doesn't resurface on the agenda in any real way politically. Mulroney had essentially told the pro-life movement, I'm going to, here's this piece of legislation, take it or leave it. And the pro-life movement fought for something better and didn't get it. And at that point, it, it seems like the conservative movement moved on. Now, I don't want to overstate the case because you do, of course, have these other currents going on and it's part of your other field of research, right? Where you have the total collapse of Mulroney's conservatives and then you've got the rise of Preston Manning's Reform Party and then you have, you know, three consecutive Jean Christian majority governments, Paul Martin uh, minority government and then finally you have a couple of Harper minorities before he secures his, his single majority mandate in 2011 and throughout this sort of unite the right movement um, from sort of the year 2000 onwards, uh, social conservatives and pro-lifers got pushed off the platform in every every definitive way. And you even have a lot of the, the former social conservative leaders during this period who will justify that being done, even those who held pro-life convictions themselves. So it was quite a disillusioning period as, as Canadian conservatism sort of reshaped itself in response to the collapse of Mulroney's conservatives, at some point, social conservatives woke up and realized that we'd been left distinctly out in the cold, which is a status quo that continues to this day and, of course, is being radically enforced by the current conservative leader. So from, you know, based on your historical research and based on your historical perspective, how would you encapsulate the 1990s and early 2000s? You know, the defeat of the Mulroney government, well, as you said, after the defeat of that abortion bill from Mulroney, he said that said he's not going to, you know, introduce any more abortion legislation. He was just frustrated with it, you know, and he he wasn't sympathetic to the pro-life position himself anyway. But then, he, you know, as conservatives, as you mentioned, they lost, they got blown out in the election of 1993, the federal election. So the liberals come to power under Chrétien. Of course, the Liberal Party is... Uh, mostly pro-abortion at that time, although there were still, you know, pro-life liberal MPs, but they were a small percentage of the caucus. And then the opposition in East in English-speaking Canada was the Reform Party. Now, there were a lot of social conservatives in the Reform Party, but the Reform Party did not take an explicitly pro-life stand. And, you know, there were a lot of people in the Reform Party that weren't uh, sympathetic to the pro-life cause. So, so it wasn't like the Reform Party had much of a mandate, you know, to push any kind of a pro-life agenda on their end. So you have, you have the, the main, you know, the, the governing party, which is pro-abortion, essentially, and you have the opposition party, which kind of to some degree suppresses you know the pro-life instinct and so that the kind of the, like you mentioned that the pro-life uh, issue 
you know, in terms of elected politicians, kind of leaves the uh, leaves the stage. But what it, it's replaced though by that the by you know uh, homosexual rights issues because in the '90s the homosexual rights issues really took center stage for the social conservative movement. But yeah, it, over over time, I guess beginning with that '93 election, social conservative like the the pro life cause I guess loses more and more of its influence in terms of electoral politics and and, and parliamentary politics. It becomes I don't know, it's like an orphan child, you know, nobody really wants to take it on anymore. And that just kind of gets worse and worse over time to the point now where, you know, even the conservative leader is can't say how strongly he supports abortion. Like that's just, he's so adamant on that point. And any pro-lifers are very much marginalized, even within the conservative caucus. So it's, it's kind of a gradual process, but it did begin after the defeat of that bill, uh, C-43. So I guess because it's a gradual you know, kind of invisible thing. We don't notice as much, but, he, but there were, you know, it was, it was easier, I think, for a, a politician to stand for pro-life issues in the early 90s than it is now. And the kind of the frog in the water kind of a thing where we don't notice it so much as it's happening. And we find ourselves now in a situation where, where you know, the, the conservatives don't want one of their MPs to even to say something pro-life. They don't even want to support. I mean, the conservatives won't even support, you know, you know, the just a few years ago, we had Cassie's, Cassie and Molly's law proposal, which was, you know, if a mother is killed who's pregnant, that her unborn child that dies in that should also be counted as a life. And the, they can't even get support, you know, for a law like that or for sex selective abortion laws. Even the Conservative Party tries to suppress its own MPs from introducing those kind of laws. And that's supposed to be the party that represents the social conservatives. So, so there's really, in terms of, you know, at least in terms of the leadership of these political parties, there, there's really no representation for the pro-life view. Of course, there are some still, there's still some very good pro-life MPs in the Conservative caucus, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they have to keep quiet if they want to, you know, they don't want to be rocking the boat too much. That's just the way, you know, caucus works in, in the parliamentary system. For those uh, who are listening to this and thinking, okay, so... These two guys have just finished, you know, giving giving the story of a movement that began in, in response to something in 1969 that managed to accrue a million signatures within a handful of years, built a, a national infrastructure, all of these different things. And yet, if you look at Canada today, we're, we're out of step with, with not just the West, but almost every country in the world on these issues. You know, abortion is legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. The entire LGBT agenda, for that matter, is, is not just accepted, but it's a, it's a matter of national pride. It's the thing we're known for on the world stage. It's become a part of our national identity. You know, and the place in, in Canada's national fabric where the Judeo-Christian tradition stood, that's been ripped out and it's been replaced with, with progressive secular values. And so how did we get to a country where the criminalization of abortion actually passed Parliament in, in 1990-91 and then failed on a tie vote in the Senate to, to the point where bringing up a restriction on abortion that's accepted in every other liberal nation on earth, bringing up and, and the most reasonable of concerns about a conversion therapy bill, about the LGBT agenda, you know, suggesting that we pause and consider the fact that before we trash 2000 years of human experience, perhaps we need a sober second thought that instead we live in a country where none of that happens where despite the vast majority of immigrants in this country who come from more traditional cultures and would be offside with much of what uh, Trudeau's social agenda dictates, how did we get from, from there to here from a historical perspective? I don't know if I can comprehensively explain that, but what I, I do think we can point to, Pierre Trudeau really has a key role in this. And in two respects, he was, Pierre Trudeau 
I was very involved in helping to strengthen the Canadian feminist movement in the 1970s. He created programs to help fund feminist groups to strengthen them because he wanted, you know, to expand the feminist movement in Canada. So that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons why Canada has a stronger feminist movement, or at least had, you know, a few decades ago in terms of campaigning for some of these, you know, feminist issues like abortion was because they were receiving federal government support so that they, you know, had the financing behind them to hire people and promote these kind of things. The other thing is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I have a very negative view of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and I have a reason for that, and I don't have to go into that. But one of the things it did, though, was it introduced into Canada, you know, the rights mentality that we didn't have before. I mean, Canada before the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was adopted, was already one of the freest and best countries in the world to live, you know, from the time it existed. So, you know, human rights were not under a threat in Canada. Canadians had individual rights. But, you know, Trudeau brought in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms saying, well, we needed our rights protected. But one of the things the Charter of Rights did was create a rights mentality in Canada. And, And even though the Charter in and of itself doesn't, you know, give an explicit right to abortion, it's it's part of the the discourse is that, you know, women have rights to their body and, and, you know, the women's rights to choose and all this kind of stuff that becomes reinforced by the rights kind of mentality that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms helped to bring into Canada. So I think, and of course, you know, it was on the basis of the charter that, that the abortion law was struck down in 1988 for Morgenthaler. And there were subsequent abortion decisions that weren't as big as that, but they always fell out in the pro-abortion direction, even though they weren't as significant as the Morgenthaler decision. And they were, of course, based on the charter. So I think the charter is one of the kind of underlying cultural influences that helps to push Canada away from its original, you know, more pro-life, pro-family orientation. There's Canada, the world's first woke nation, but there's also, of course, a, a pro-life movement. I think that in in many ways, I feel like the, the, the 1990s in some ways are, are the lost decade. And what I mean by that is, is I look at the people that I meet now, the, the pro-lifers I hear the stories from, right? So Gwen Landolt, Jim Hughes, you know, Ted Byfield, like all the different people who are involved in that movement. And in many cases, there's almost skips a generation. And, the, and then they, and the people that are in the pro-life movement now are, are like more in their early 30s and 20s. And so you've got, a, there, there's, there's in many cases, at least in the organizations, you've got the, the old guard who fought this decades-long battle that you just referred to. And then there's there's a younger generation with, with groups that have come up, uh, cropped up more recently. When you look at Canada's social conservative movement and, and what we're up against, do you think there's any possibility that the movement is doing more than simply saving individual lives and presenting a public witness? Even if it was those two things you mentioned, the saving of the lives and the public, public witness, I think those are very, very significant things. You know, uh, saving one life, that's a, that's a big deal. And, you know, that's going on every year in Canada with the pro-life movement, right? So that even by itself would justify it. But also, you know, having the public witness, having people know, you know, that, that this is an issue. I mean, most people going around their day-to-day lives probably don't think about abortion, don't even think about things, think, things are going on. So when you have the public witness, it's bringing to people's attention that something is wrong, you know, and, and that's an important thing. I mean, like in the Old Testament, we had the prophets. And even if people weren't listening to them, you know, God still had them out preaching because the message had to go out. And so it's an important function, a prophetic function to let people know what's going on. And so th- those two things you mentioned, even if those are just the things that are happening, because I like nothing, you know, specifically comes to mind where I could argue that there's a like some big effect that the social conservative movement is having in a good way. Aside from those two things, those two things justify the movement all by themselves. Even the first one justifies itself. Like there's... Like it's a discouraging situation we're in in terms of you know the pro life situation that we're not going to get a law anytime soon. It looks like that would 
restrict abortion. And that can be really discouraging. And, and you know, the way that pro-lifers are, you know, maligned in the media, you know, especially the CBC and some of these media things, you can just tell that they just despise pro-lifers. It's really discouraging, but I, I don't want to like discourage pro-lifers. What they're doing is so important that in spite of all these other things and, and the, the situation all looking good, it's still so important what they're doing. Um, and so, so saving lives and being that public witness, if, if that's all that's being achieved right now, that's enough. That's enough to justify what they're doing and even more. So I, that didn't really exactly answer your question, but, but I, I do think that those things are really important. And very much does echo my view. I often say I'm glad I work in the educational arm rather than the political arm, just because we get to see minds changed and, and lives saved all the time. And so I never have to sort of have... Uh, you know, a dark struggle of was this all worth it, whereas politics is more of a zero-sum game. If your guy loses, your guy loses. The, the final question I wanted to close with is, is you've often said that three of the most significant figures on the Canadian religious right were Ted Byfield, the, the, the Alberta publisher of Alberta Report, our mutual friend, Gwen, uh, Gwen Landold of, of, of Real Women of Canada, and then Ken Campbell, who brought Randall Terry to Canada and was involved in anti-porn campaigns and what have you. Now, I wanted to know if you could give us a bit of a summary of, of these, these three people, except for Gwen Landolt, because we had her on the podcast for over an hour to share her experiences. So if anybody's interested in her life story, and you should be, you can check out that on the podcast. So tell us a bit about uh, Ted Byfield and, and Ken Campbell. Yeah, I'll just start with Ken Campbell first. He was actually a Baptist evangelist from Ontario. You know, his main career was... was um, citywide campaigns, kind of like a small scale Billy Graham, but for Canada, although he did some traveling in the States. And so that's kind of, that was his thing. He was, he was an evangelist, you know, uh, preaching the gospel. Then in the early seventies, his kids were in public school in Ontario. And some of the, there were some very negative influences coming in, in terms of promoting homosexual rights and other, you know, too much sexual content in the literature for the children. So he got involved first just in his school because what he was concerned about what his kids were being exposed to. And from that, you know, he, he developed a bit of a political following and he created an organization called Renaissance Canada. And he became more and more involved in, in opposing the extension of the homosexual rights movement because, you know, in the, by the early 70s, late, late 60s, early 70s, first in the United States and then into Canada, you have this homosexuals, uh, you know, demanding more, uh, they wanted more, uh, you know, I guess, you know, I said human rights or homosexual rights for themselves. I mean, they already had human rights, of course, but they wanted specific things where there would be, wouldn't be discrimination against homosexuals and certain things, and they wanted to be more accepted. So, you know, that was being fought in Canada and the United States, and this was an important issue for Ken Campbell. So he first got involved in, in social conservative political activism, opposing the extension of homosexual rights in Canada, and he brought, there was a very famous woman in the United States, Anita Bryant, who had opposed some of the, in, in Florida, she had opposed a, a certain ordinance promoting homosexual rights there, and so she was very prominent in that issue, and, and Ken Campbell brought her to Canada to speak across Canada. But then, it, it, so that was kind of the issue that he was known for until the early 80s, because of the Morgenthaler issue, he became much more involved in pro-life activism himself. And that became kind of a focus of his activism really for a while. And he ended up getting arrested in the rescue mission. He actually, he, he has a book where he recounts his personal experiences in the rescue mission. So he ended up going, so he was very prominent. He became very prominent in the pro-life movement. But then he began to, he was, he was an older man and he started to, you know, become less involved as, as time went on as he got a little bit older. Now, Ted Byfield was originally, of course, he was a journalist. He was really originally from Ontario as well, but he ended up as a young man um, becoming a, a journalist in Winnipeg and he became he won some at least one major award in Winnipeg as a journalist there yeah in 57 okay 57 he and his wife when, while they're there they were evangelized by conservative Anglicans so he wasn't a Christian until that point so he was he was evangelized by Christians who were admirers of C.S. Lewis and so he and his wife became very committed 
to, uh, to Christianity and to spreading Christianity. And they became involved in forming um, an organization called the Company of the Cross, which was an Anglican lay organization. And its purpose was to promote, to promote Christianity through education and through journalism. So they started forming uh, private schools first in Manitoba, the St. John's School. I'm not sure if it's still there anymore. Then, then he actually, he, Ted Byfield came to Alberta to form St. John's Christian School in, in the Edmonton area. And that's how he came to Alberta. That would have been around 1970. So education and, and journalism. So after he'd been here a few years, he formed what was called St. John's Edmonton Report, which was kind of a, a weekly news magazine that was published out of the school and affiliated with the school. To make a long story short, that grew into Alberta Report so that by 1979, it was a province-wide news magazine. But but because it was you know published originally by this you know lay organization one of the main purposes it was wasn't just to have journalism but have journalism from a christian perspective you know so that people will be reading the news from a christian worldview rather than the secular worldview that they were getting from all the other media so alberta report actually grew and became had a very wide circulation in alberta and it ended up expanding into the other western provinces and then later briefly across canada but it was a very influential uh, media organization in the west and especially in alberta and so that christian perspective was 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 you know read by many thousands, tens of thousands of people here. And it was influential. Ted Byfield was very influential in the politics of Alberta. You know, when he would write columns on certain issues, politicians took notice because he was, uh, many people took him seriously as they should have. He was a very articulate spokesman for, you know, Christian causes and pro-life and just pro-family causes in general. So that's kind of the the major role he played. He was, that would have been the biggest uh, media voice for social conservatism in Canada that I could think of, you know, in the last several decades. Of course, the, the magazine ended up folding in 2003, unfortunately. Um, and, and partly they thought that might have been, they, they were starting to lose the subscriber basis. And they thought that was partly that might have been because there were fewer social conservatives. And so they had a, a, a smaller uh, audience. And so their their subscriber base was, was shrinking. And that ultimately led to um, the demise of the magazine. But it, but for many years, like it, was, it existed for 30 years, and especially in the 80s, it had tens of thousands of subscribers and was very influential, you know, in, uh, in fighting for um, social conservative causes. And actually, it was a very influential instrument in the creation of the Reform Party. Like, it's hard to see how the Reform Party could have started without the support of Ted Byfield and the and Alberta Report magazine. Final question then, Michael, the first of, of what I hope will be several conversations. Where can our listeners find your books, which I've found incredibly helpful for the listeners. The one I recommend the most that's based on, on this subject is, is Standing on Guard for Thee, the Past, Peasant, and Future of, of Canada's Religious Right. Where can people get a hold of your books? There's a small Alberta-based business, and their website is merchantship.ca. And Standing on Guard for the Azare and some of my other books, that's the only place I'm afraid it's available online. Aside from it's available on Kindle, I guess, on Amazon. But I'm a paper, paper and print guy myself. So merchantship.ca, if you go to that website, it's like a, it's, a, it's mostly for homeschooling uh, materials. It's a, it's a Christian family who operate, operate this family business. And so you're supporting a small Christian family business when you buy there as well. So merchantship.ca. And if you just search my name or just, you know, my last name there, my, my books will come up and that's where you can get a, a printed copy of standing on guard for the, like say that if whoever likes Kindle, it should be available still on Amazon. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Jonathan. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Michael Wagner, author of Standing on Guard for Thee, the past, present, and future of Canada's religious right. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you did, you can head over to LifeSightNews.com, click on the podcast tab. You'll find the Van Maren Show there. And you can subscribe to this podcast to get us wherever you find your content. Again, thank you so much for taking the time and spending it with us. We do hope you'll join us again next week.